The New Testament lesson is found in the book of Matthew, chapter 11. Come to me, all you that are weary and carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Thank you. Well, we are worked our way up to the prophet Nahum, uh, and unless you're a, a pretty diligent reader of your Bible that uh, doesn't mind to go into areas that we don't normally go into, you've probably not either heard of Naaman, uh, Nahum or heard much from him. He doesn't appear in the lectionary cycle at all. It's one uh, book that we just don't read from in our uh, three-year cycle of Bible readings, and he gets only an, an oblique reference uh, in the New Testament at, at best, or a couple places that are maybe based on a verse in Nahum, eh, maybe not. Uh, but he does mention the yoke, uh, and Jesus isn't quoting Nahum necessarily, but using uh, some of Nahum's language of the yoke of the empire, uh, which is something which the Hebrew people knew in Egypt and had escaped for a few hundred years of freedom and were relearning in Nahum's time after being conquered by Assyria and soon to be conquered by Babylon. And, and perhaps one reason that Nahum gets ignored in our lectionary cycle is that he, there's only really two verses in here that he speaks to the Hebrew people, to the Jewish people. The rest of the book, and it's only three chapters, it's not very long, is all uh, uh, words of judgment against Assyria, the country that invaded the northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, and, and, and it's addressed to Nineveh, the capital, and, and to the king, and it's almost uh, celebratory of just how vast and, uh, and majestic and wonderful God's judgment on Assyria is going to be. Uh, Nahum kind of revels in these oracles of, of, uh, of misery. And I, uh, and I don't uh, say that this is an attitude to emulate. Uh, it's definitely not an attitude to emulate. Uh, we don't want to be a, a triumphalist in that sense or uh, to enjoy the punishment of our enemies or those that we don't like. Uh, so it's not an attitude to emulate, but it is in our text. And I think as a fellow human being, I can understand, at least, that Nahum might have had some joy at delivering these oracles of judgment against their oppressors. Uh, I can understand that there might be some joy in thinking about your oppressors being punished by God. I mean, there's a certain kind of joy just thinking about them being punished or as kind of karmic retribution. But there's something special about thinking that God is going to do that to them on your behalf. How powerful and uh, wonderful is that thought to think God is going to take care of them. Uh, and I, I imagine that the African-American slaves had thoughts like this about their captives and about, or about their uh, uh, plantation owners. Or perhaps the Jews, while they were in the concentration camps, may have had thoughts like this. Or those who have been laid off, or the homeless, or the sick, uh, who are denied health care because they can't afford it. Uh, it may have, they may all very well have visions of these oppressive 
systems being judged by God. Or the coal miners in Appalachia who lived in company housing and had to buy things at the company store and always at a price higher than what they were earning in the coal mines. We have a lot of wonderful protest music, uh, folk music, country western music that comes out of that kind of economic situation. Uh, that great mining song, 16 tons and what do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt. Uh, and John's going to sing a song, uh, Forrester and the Offering. Buddy, can he spare a dime? And so here, uh, listen to chapter 3. I was going to read the third chapter here, the last words. And imagine, imagine these words being said. I imagine them as Nahum saying them to the country that has invaded his people and conquered them and sent some into exile. But imagine these words also being said today by a man or a woman who's been conquered by their employer or by a bank or a government or by Wall Street or who have been conquered by an illness, whether it's a mental illness or physical illness. Imagine a soldier saying this who has been conquered by the enemy and is now a prisoner of war or a prisoner of post-traumatic stress disorder. Imagine these words of protest coming Today, as I've said repeatedly, the prophets, the words of the prophets absolutely speak to us today. So here is chapter 3, and Nahum is speaking to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. Ah, city of bloodshed, utterly deceitful, full of booty, no end to the plunder. The crack of whip and rumble of wheel galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, piles of dead, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. Because of the countless debaucheries of the prostitute, gracefully alluring mistress of sorcery who enslaves nations through her debaucheries and peoples through her sorcery, I am against you, says the Lord of hosts. And will lift up your skirts over your face, and I will let nations look on your nakedness and kingdoms on your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. Then all who see you will shrink from you and say, Nineveh is devastated. Who will bemoan her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? Are you better than Thebes that sat by the Nile? with water around her, her rampart to sea, water her wall. Ethiopia was her strength. Egypt, too, and that without limit. Put and Libyans were her helpers. Yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Even her infants were dashed in pieces at the head of every street. Lots were cast for her nobles. All her dignitaries were bound in fetters. You also will be drunken. You will go into hiding. He's talking to Nineveh again. You will seek a refuge from the enemy. All your fortresses are like fig trees with first ripe figs. If shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. Look at your troops. They are women in your midst. The gates of your land are wide open to your foes. Fire has devoured the bars of your gates. 
Draw water for the siege, strengthen your forts, trample the clay, tread the mortar, take hold of the brick mold. There the fire will devour you, the sword will cut you off. It will devour you like a locust. Multiply yourselves like the locust, multiply like the grasshopper. You increased your merchants more than the stars of the heavens. The locust sheds its skin and flies away. Your guards are like grasshoppers, your scribes like swarms of locusts settling on the fences on a cold day. When the sun rises, they fly away. No one knows where they have gone. Your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria. Your your nobles slumber. Your people are scattered on the mountains with no one to gather them. There is no assuaging your hurt. Your wound is mortal. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For who has ever escaped your endless cruelty? And that is how Nahum ends his book. And Nahum is reminding Nineveh that it too is going to be thrown down. Like all despots and tyrannies and unjust systems, good always wins. Even if it takes a long, long, long time sometimes for that to happen. Good always wins because ultimately God is in control. And God is good. God works for what is good. God is sovereign. And to try to be empire to try to rule over others, whether it's political empire or personal empire, this trying to have rule over others is, in a sense, to try to be God. And that doesn't work. That's a fail. Our human stuff is temporary. And so Nahum is reminding Nineveh that it, too, is temporary. And, and in the midst of Uh, Nahum's ranting, he does offer a couple of verses of comfort to the Hebrew people. He's kind of haranguing Nineveh, strong words, and then kind of like, and then to the Hebrew people, it's like, but everything will be okay. And then back to Nineveh. There's a a great scene, I think it was in the second Harry Potter book, second or third, the one where uh, Harry's with his aunt and uncle, and uh, Ron Weasley and a couple of the other brothers steal their dad's magic car that flies. And they fly it uh, uh, to wherever Harry Potter is living and, and kind of rescue him out of that and then fly home. And uh, they're sitting in the kitchen and Mrs. Weasley comes in and realizes that the boys have taken this car and put the family at risk and put all of Magicdom at risk. Uh, and, and she is just haranguing her sons for stealing the car. Uh, and then in the middle of that, she, she kind of looks over and says, Oh, Harry, it's so nice to see you. And then harangues the sons Again, and then it's like, and Harry, are, are you hungry? And then goes back to haranguing the sons. It's kind of what Nahum does here. He's haranguing Assyria and then offers these words of comfort to the Hebrew people. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength, he's talking about Nineveh here, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut off and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break off his yoke from you and snap the bonds that bind you. I will break off his yoke from you and snap the bonds that bind you. That is, the yoke of Assyria will be broken. There's compassion in that. I think there's tender compassion. 
And what the prophets did, and I've mentioned this before, but what they did, especially after the Israelite, the Hebrew people lost their country, lost their temple, lost their capital uh, city, the prophets took Judaism out of the temple in many ways and took Judaism out of Israel, took it out of this idea of being centered in a place or a location. Uh, and, and did that because there was no temple anymore, there was no king, there was no country. And they had to ask, how do we be people of God if we don't have the stuff that we thought was necessary? And our, uh, people were scattered all over. And so there was this reform, this rethinking, uh, a new kind of imagination that said we don't need any of that stuff to be God's people because we're not a people of land or a people of a temple. We're people of story. We're people of covenant. People of relationship. That's what it's about. And then about 600 years, plus or minus, after the prophets, Jesus comes along when God's people are again are under another yoke, now under the yoke of the Roman Empire. And Jesus says to them, My yoke is easy. My burden is light. He offers a new story a new narrative, a new covenant of the table in the bread and wine, a covenant of grace and redemption and forgiveness and love, unlike the yoke of empire, whether it be Assyrian or Roman or British or American, uh, wherever it is in time, or whether it be the empire of, uh, of wealth or greed or political ideology or religious fundamentalism. Those are all heavy yokes. They say that they aren't, but they are. Because they dehumanize, they seek to bind and to wear us down with the weight of their false promises that they can't fulfill, and which, for the most part, they have no intention of fulfilling. Jesus offers this alternative, God's way of abundance, not scraps, but of abundance. God's way that says, take what you think is generous and then give more. Make sure that your neighbor is taken care of. You know, as we've been traveling through the prophets, we've heard again and again that the chief complaint of the prophets against the people of Israel and of Judah was that they weren't taking care of their neighbors. Their chief complaint was this mistreatment of the poor at the expense of the rich. And Jesus comes along and says, when the religious leaders have kind of again fallen into the same sin, and when they're under the Roman Empire, Jesus says, the yoke of empire is no good. It's not healthy. It's not good for humans. And the yoke of the Pharisees and the other religious leaders who have again turned our faith into a faith of laws and rituals that oppress and keep people out on the outside, and that makes a distinction between the in and the out, them and us, is no good. And the yoke of laboring for empire is no good because it's dehumanizing. And he says, shows his disciples, here is a new way. The way of the table. The table that's placed in our midst here. Uh, the way of the table where everyone is invited, where everyone has a place. No one is denied access. No one is turned away. We never say at the table there's not enough for you. There's enough for everyone. For the oppressed and the oppressor, the bankers and the businessmen, carpenters and the cabbies, the happy and the sad, the sinful, the careful, the broken and the whole, the healthy and the sick, 
Jesus says, come, no matter what yoke or yokes you are burdened by, and no matter what yokes you may have burdened others with, come to this table. Whether it be a yoke of empire or vengeance or holding a grudge or fear of a neighbor, the yoke of pursuing madly after happiness or accumulating stuff, the yoke of pride or the yoke of ego, whatever that yoke is, come to this table. And you can shed that yoke here and take up my yoke. The yoke of rest, of gentleness and humility, the yoke of love, which is the only way to change the world. It's our quilters are doing that. Our donations to the St. Francis Food Pantry do that. Our street ministers are doing that by distributing handy and, and water. Our service at the community table is doing that. Showing the world this new way, this way of Jesus, the way of love and of grace and of mercy. And thanks be to God for all of you here who minister in the city of Eau Claire and in the world and minister to one another. And thank God for all of the good that Plymouth UCC does. And thanks be to God just for being God and for inviting us to this table freely, with no barriers, no requirements, just however we are and whoever we are, welcome at God's table. Amen.